the Spirit is stirring and moving our hearts to bring us to a place of encounter, a place of encountering with Him in the Word. And I want to draw out a few things out of Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, if you'll just follow along as I read. But we see Him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Let's pray together. Father, as we sing, as we read Scripture with the call and response, and now as we study your word, God, we know your Spirit's drawing us to a place a place that we would hear your voice in a fresh way. Speak to us. God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, tonight, I want to drive in the first point, and that is very simply this. We have a great salvation. We have a great salvation. That is what the book of Hebrews is right, the, the writer was writing about. He was focused on this great work of God in the world and particularly in our lives. And so we see, beginning in verse 9, we see him, that is Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Crowned with glory and honor. There's something unique and special about the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, the letter of Hebrews begins in chapter 1 and verse 2 with these words. In the last days, he has spoken to us by his son. That is, right now, April 15, 2022, God is speaking to us through his son. Through the words of his son, through the actions of his son, God is speaking right now in to our lives. He goes on, whom he appointed the heir, that is God the Father, appointed his son, Jesus Christ, to be the heir over all things through whom also he created the world. But listen to this next phrase. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of of his nature. So what the writer is doing is bringing us into the person of Christ, looking at these different aspects of him. So he's speaking through his son, but then he says he's the heir to all things. And then he says he is the radiance of the glory of God. There is a oneness with the Father. He has the same essential glory. That is that Jesus Christ is God. He's always been God, will always be God, and will be ruling over the entire universe. So there's a starting place. And then he says the exact imprint of his nature. There's a distinction between the Father and the Son, right? Just like there's a distinction between the Father, Son, and Spirit. But here he's talking about the Father and the son, but there's a oneness. They're of the same essence. And so what the writer wants us to do is see the majesty, the greatness of Jesus Christ. And then he brings us to this place of salvation 
in chapter 2. But even in chapter 1, he says, after making purification for our sins, Jesus Christ sits down at the right hand of the Father, demonstrating that the work at the cross was finished because of all that happened the days following with the resurrection. So he sits down in the seat of honor and he is finished with his work. We get into chapter 2, the author then says, now don't neglect so great a salvation. That's in verse 3 of chapter 2. And so then we get into this idea of the good news. What is the good news that brings about our deliverance from sin. And here it is, there's this greatness of God, the holiness of God. No being is like this God. He's supreme and perfect in every way. And what is happening is he is pouring out his wrath against all sin. Imagine that, this perfect, holy God who is all-powerful is wielding all his wrath against our sin, my sin and your sin, the sin of the entire world, Jesus Christ is now stepping into the, the brunt force of the wrath of God, steps in between God and us, and takes the full force of the wrath of God and delivers us from it. That is the essence of the good news that Jesus Christ stands in our place where we should be condemned. Jesus Christ stands condemned, taking the full force of the wrath of God. Of God. That is why our salvation is so great. So as we read this, it says in verse 9, we see him, that is Jesus Christ, crowned with glory and honor. The next phrase, because of the suffering of death. And so right there we get a very significant principle, and that is this the cross comes first, then the crown. First the cross, then the crown. First the cross, then the crown. So when the author writes, do not neglect our salvation, what he wants for you and me is never to lose the wonder, the mystery, the majesty of what God did through his son, Jesus Christ. So on Good Friday, we come together, we look at this, and we begin to meditate upon it. Imagine all that God was doing. And let me say, we do it tonight, but you and I will be doing this for all eternity, and we will never, never exhaust all that God was doing through the cross. I mean, that is incomprehensible, that we could dwell on this, we could meditate upon it, we could linger in the issues of the cross, and we could never exhaust the expansiveness of what God was doing through the blood of Jesus Christ. No wonder we can say we have a great, great salvation. So we see Jesus crowned with His glory and honor because He accomplished all of it. It says in verse 10 then, it was fitting that He, that He is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So it is fitting. That is, it's consistent with God the Father's character. It's consistent 
with who God is in his holiness, in his power, that he is going to restore all things, but it would begin with suffering. It says that it would bring sons, and can we say daughters, to glory. Now, there's a little pause when I say, and daughters, not because it's not in the text, certainly it's including women. But there's something powerful that can be missed if we don't read it just as it's written. And let me see if I can describe this. It says, bringing many sons to glory. So what God is doing in the picture of sons is what we see in our world and for most of history is a son often followed in the path of the father. So whatever the father did, the son did. And the son then would begin to take on the characteristics of the father, would begin to imitate him and emulate him. In my own family, that was the case. My grandfather was a printer. My dad was in the printing trade. And my brother was in the printing trade. Now, I don't know what happened to me that I didn't make it. But the point is, is that what God is doing in bringing sons to glory is that we are going to be taking on the characteristics of Jesus Christ, who has the exact characteristics of God the Father. Let me say it a little differently. We will be conformed to the image of Christ as Christ is, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 2, is that he is the exact imprint of his nature. doesn't mean we'll be God, but what it means is it will be taking on the characteristics of God himself. And the cross is the only way that could have happened. So in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, it says this, for the word of the cross is foolishness to the world. People look at what we're doing tonight, focusing on the cross, focusing on what happened through the blood of Christ, and the world laughs at this, mocks at this, scoffs, and calls it foolishness. But to those who are being saved, those who are being moved and changed by the blood of the cross, it says being saved, it is the power of God. In verse 24 of the same chapter in 1 Corinthians, it says Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. That is, Christ crucified begins to show all the wisdom of God in bringing many people to glory. So as we look at this, there's that next phrase that I want to be, my second point, our founder was made perfect through suffering. That's what we see in verse 10. The founder was made perfect through suffering. Let me read it exactly as it's written. It was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. So this idea of a founder is first of all this, is that Jesus Christ is leading the way. Jesus Christ is not in the back pushing people forward and saying, you go first into suffering. What Jesus does is he becomes the author, the founder, the pioneer, the leader into suffering so that we could be on our way 
to glory. He doesn't stand back. He's the one who starts it all. That's what he means by founder. And then he says, was made perfect. Let me first of all say what he doesn't mean. He doesn't mean that somehow there was an imperfection in Jesus Christ, that at some point he was sinful or that he was disobedient. That's not what the author is trying to say. What he is trying to say is that Jesus enters a sinful world and we see him and we see him as he's described, but it's not until he He's tested. It's not until he's proven himself that he is the obedient one, the sin, sinless one, the one that walks in holiness, right? So he comes in and he's tempted by the devil. And we see that he is victorious over that. What the author is trying to say is that's Jesus being made perfect. He is showing us that he is obedient to the Father. Or when he was being crushed by people, or when he was being forced upon, he continued to press into obedience. And that's what the author means, that he was being made perfect. And so we don't know someone is perfect sometimes until it's tested. When Jesus gets tested in all the suffering, then we begin to see that he was made perfect. But look what it says, through suffering. Then diving into verse 11, it says, he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. God is now bringing us together. Jesus is the one who sanctifies. We're the ones who are sanctified by him. And then he says, we all have one source. Obviously, the source is the power of God. That is why he is not ashamed to call us family or here to call us brothers and sisters. So what we see is that Jesus Christ wants to enter our suffering, our pain in this fallen, broken world. And so as we live in it, we sin, we fail, we disappoint, we are disobedient to God. But Jesus Christ enters this world and he is never sinful. He is never disobedient. He never dishonors the Father. So he becomes the leader in the suffering. So as I've said, let me say it again, first comes the cross, then comes the glory. First comes the cross, then comes the glory. So let me ask you a question. If that's true for Jesus, what about us? He's bringing us to glory. Does that mean we get to avoid the suffering? We all know that there's a lot of suffering. But what we tend to do is resist the suffering. What we tend to do is run from the pain. What we want to do is avoid the conflict and the issues. And what Jesus is showing us is a better way. And so what he's doing, as it says here, the founder is made perfect through suffering. Look what it says through the power of the Holy Spirit in Romans chapter 5, verse 3. Romans chapter 5, verse 3, it says this, we boast in our sufferings. Some translations say we rejoice in our sufferings. That word suffering there is all kinds of tribulations, all kinds of conflict. And what we see is that Paul is saying we need to boast in this kind of suffering. We need to rejoice in this kind of suffering. But what do we do? We want to hide from it. We want to run from it. So let me just unpack this a little bit. There is only one 
path to glory. And it is suffering. It's hardwired into the universe the way God made it all. There is only one path to glory for Jesus Christ and for me and for you. And it's through suffering. Let's look at another verse. 2 Timothy 1.8, the Holy Spirit speaking again to us. He says, share in the suffering for the gospel by the power of God. The share there is an imperative. It's a command. Don't run from suffering. Share in the suffering. Enter the suffering. Share in this suffering. Why? For the good news. The good news that God is dealing with all the sin and all the suffering that's a result of sin through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel by the power of God. So what we begin to see is that God is using this suffering. Just like he did it in his son, he is doing it in us. But now we're set up to go a little deeper. And to see this in another light, let me give you what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said a few years before he was martyred. He said this, there are many Christians who indeed kneel before the cross of Christ. That's what we were doing tonight, isn't it? Some of us were raising our hands, which is a posture of uh, bowing. It's a posture of saying, I'm honoring Christ. There are many Christians who indeed kneel before the cross of Christ and yet hate the cross, that cross, in their own lives when they're suffering when there's difficulties, when there's tribulations, we hate it. And so in truth, they hate the cross of Jesus Christ as well. And in truth, despise that cross and try by any means possible to escape it. So what God is bringing us to this Good Friday is a place of looking at our own suffering, our own pain. So not only does God say that it's the only path to glory, while we're on this side waiting to be fully transformed with the return of Christ or our own death, what that suffering does is it matures us. It strengthens our character. It builds us into the people that God wants us to be. But what we tend to do is resist it and fight it rather than allow God to have his perfect way with us. Bonhoeffer goes on and he says this, but those who love the cross of Jesus Christ, that's why you're here tonight, because we love it. Those who genuinely found peace in it. Now this idea of peace, of course, is coming out of something like Romans chapter 5, verse 1, where it says this, it says, since we have been justified, since we have been declared right with God, based on what? The cross of Jesus Christ, we have peace with God. We are now in a right relationship with him. So what Bonhoeffer is saying, those who genuinely have found that peace now begin to love even the tribulations in their lives. And ultimately, we'll be able to say with Scripture, we boast in our sufferings. And now you're saying, whoa, is this what Good Friday 
is supposed to bring us to. And yes, it is. There is only one path to glory, and it is through suffering. And our founder led the way. He's the pioneer. He's the founder. He's the leader. He is showing us the way through suffering. Tonight, as you came in, you received a rock. Did everyone get a little rock? This is an important time in the service because what this rock represents is sin and suffering. Nobody escapes it in this world. Sin has permeated this world, the entire universe, and Jesus Christ has dealt with it. And this rock represents that. But it also represents suffering. Sometimes when we come to a place and we start thinking about sin and suffering, we, we can think about, especially in a church, the big sins. The ones that are, 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 are obviously there. And we, we put a spotlight on them. Something like addictions to alcohol or drugs. And we put a spotlight on it and we make that the bad one. Or pornography. And then when we think about suffering, we think about, yes, we've seen homes that have been destroyed by the abuse of drugs and alcohol. We have seen the homes and families, the marriages destroyed by pornography. We have seen total disintegration of family units due to addiction to gambling, right? This rock represents all that. But sometimes, because we put a spotlight on those things, we miss some of the stuff in our own hearts, don't we? There's stuff in your heart. But sometimes we don't always see that our sin causes a lot of suffering in other people. Sometimes we think of just the sin and the destruction that it's done to me, but we don't look at what it's done to others. Now, I don't know the sin in your heart. I can't see it. I just know it's there. So maybe to help you see what I'm talking about, it would be good if I just talked about my own sin. It's there. It's ugly. I don't like it. This rock represents it. I have pride. You say, sure enough, we all have pride. You got pride, I got pride, we've all got pride. But pride is interesting because it manifests itself in different ways. It shows its ugly face in very creative ways. So for me, it shows in my self-focus. I can be consumed with myself. I can be self-centered and selfish. I haven't lost anybody yet. But here's what it looks like in my own family. So as I get consumed with myself and self-focus and I don't get what I want, my sin begins to show itself in sulking. You know what sulking is? Sullenness. I can be moody. It would come out in my family like this. What's going on with dad? What's wrong with him? Now they wouldn't say it to me. They'd say it to my lovely wife, their mother. 
But see how pride just unfolds into selfishness, moving because I can't get what I want and life's not going the way I think it should go or I have a bad day, I begin to sulk and I get moody. But where it really shows its ugliness in hurting people is it hurts my wife. My wife gets hurt by my sin because what she does is she says, what did I do wrong? Of course, she didn't do anything wrong. It's all me. But because of my in-my-headness, you know what I mean by that? She is like, what did I do wrong? And I bring pain and suffering into her life and into her world. But what does she deserve? Just the opposite. Kindness, love, a cherishing. Now, which sin is worse? The one that we put a spotlight on, pornography, addictions, gambling, or the insidiousness of my pride manifesting itself through selfishness, moving into a sulkiness that hurts other people so that they are now hurting and in pain. See, that's what sin does. That's what my sin has done. And I could multiply this many times over of all the different things. But so it's not about me and about what the Spirit wants to do in your life. What we want to do tonight is take some time and reflect. What is it? Now, I'm not asking you to create some ugly sin in your life. What I'm asking you to do is let the Spirit show you something that you're doing that's sin that is actually causing hurt and pain, sorrow in other people's lives. What we want to do at the end of the service is we've got these rocks and we've got some barrels up here. And after we identify what those are and we sit with that, I don't want you to go home with it. I don't want to go home with it. I wish I never had to deal with my stuff again. But it's a constant battle. So I'm going to chunk my rock into the barrel. I want to encourage all of you to do that. And the way we'll do it is we'll just come up through the aisles and throw it in the barrel and then we'll exit tonight on the outside of here. But before we do that, the band's going to come out and they're going to play and bring us into a posture, a place where we can meditate. And let the Spirit work. Let the Spirit show you what it is in your heart that not only hurts your own soul, but is impacting and actually bringing hurt and suffering to others. Father, thank you that you are so good. That you've never abandoned us. You sent your Son. And as it says in Hebrews 12.2, it says that we are to lay aside every encumbrance, every rock, <laughs> and the sin which so easily entangles us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy, the pleasure set before him, 
set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame of that cross, and then sat down at the right hand of God. God, help us do that tonight. Lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us.